Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batir. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I am here today with Jen Huffstetler, Chief Product Sustainability Officer at Intel Corporation. Many of you probably know Intel for their computer chips. Intel is not just about making computer chips, though. As a company, they state they want to shape the future of technology to help create a better future for the entire world. With an ambitious statement like that, we need to think about current topics like AI and increasing computing power and how all of this fits into the energy and sustainability conversation. So, Jen, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would, please share with me in the audience your background and a quick introduction to Intel and your role there. Yeah, thank you, Joe. Um, And it's a pleasure to be here uh, with you and your audience. So I've been at Intel uh, for over 20 years and had the opportunity to work in almost all of our business units from PC clients to server systems, uh, from server processors and GPUs. And in our my last role, as we were working on our data center of the future strategies, we really uncovered this theme of sustainability uh, and how do you really best support sustainability for the future. Um, that was how I uh, approached this role, how I came into it, putting together a corporate strategy where we're looking end to end across the enterprise. And my mission is to help to accelerate two of the three uh, pillars of our strategy, which include um, lowering our footprint in our manufacturing. And, you know, for my focus is then to look at products and how we lower uh, the footprint for those products, the environmental footprint overall for carbon water waste. Um, And that is from chips to boards to systems to data centers to software solutions. So you hear us talk about that. And then the third pillar um, of the strategy in this role is how do we collaborate with the ecosystem to shape standards around the world and build solutions that are going to help our customers, which is most industry, every industry on the planet, uh, to lower their carbon footprint with our technology. That sounds great. So thank you for that introduction. I, I like the the large, big scale ideas and thinking about how do you make these more sustainable and lowering the emission footprint. I think there's there's two topics that I want to discuss discuss today and relate together as we were talking about your role and and looking at that. And as you were explaining it, you made me realize the importance that for these two larger ideas to make a more sustainable society. Here we're thinking about computing and large scale computing and data centers. Right now, really, I think most computing is done in data centers. So I wanna first start with that. How much energy is consumed by data centers and networks right now? And as you talked about lowering emissions, Can we, or do we have a way to relate that directly to emissions? And and then if I can throw another question at you right now, with all of that, with AI quickly integrating into our lives, how does AI affect those larger ideas of data centers and energy consumption and lowering emissions? It's a lot (laughs) and we will cover it all, Joe. so I think, you know, first and foremost, certainly, um, you know, compute has been scaling across, you know, all industries in an accelerated fashion over the last decade um, plus. And when you look at just the data centers, it's important not to only look at the data center, but also the network of energy that is being consumed to transmit that data. Um, so today, Uh, IEA is reporting world energy consumption by data centers is at 220 to 320 terawatt hours. And that last report was in 2021. And that is, you know, executing some 650 million workloads, which is up 260% from 2020. Um, 
the data transmission part is almost equivalent at another 260 to 340 terawatt hours. So those combined, they, uh, you know, they take about 2% of the world's energy consumption. And you asked, you know, let's put that in context for, you know, the audience here. A U.S. home average user consumes 11,000 kilowatt hours a year. So very small compared to this terawatt hours, you know, we're combining them together. Um, so multiple hundreds of terawatt hours. And from an emission standpoint, you know, that could equate to 600 megatons of CO2 equivalent emissions for that combined data center and the transmission network. The total emissions for the world overall are 38 gigatons. So it's still a small part of the total whole, um, but because uh, our, our society is ever more being built upon compute, right? When's the last yeah. time you printed out an airline ticket <laughs> or went to the bank to deposit a check, right? All of this can now be done digitally. And so we're going to continue to see the growth. But why um, you haven't seen the growth accelerate exponentially over the last decade and a half is because of things like Moore's Law and the product innovations and the energy efficiency that we've been able to deliver every generation to these customers. So even within the same footprint, Intel's delivered a 15% energy efficiency CAGR over that horizon. We estimate that we've saved about a thousand terawatt hours in the data centers that are available today. Um, so it's something that's really important to think about. You know, the demand's growing, the innovation is happening um, to continue to improve the energy efficiency, both in the hardware and the software of the products. So let me make sure I, I understand here as we talk about about things like Moore's Law and and computing itself. You said right now or, or the 2020 report said roughly 650 million workloads took 220 to 320 terawatt hours is that is what i'm hearing you say and please correct me if i'm wrong but if we were to then see upwards of 1200 million workloads if we continue on the path we're doing now which is increasing efficiency of our computing we're not actually going to see the same linear increase in energy need we should get, we should be able to do more work with less energy. Or That's correct. That, that is what every um, every semiconductor provider is striving for every day, right? How do you get more work done uh, at either the same energy or with less energy? Um, so that's correct. You won't see a linear growth, and I think they're, you know, it's it's something that's important for everyone to understand is. You know, not only is the hardware getting more efficient each and every generation, whether it's with cores, it's also you're seeing evolutions of workload models. So back in the early 2000s, applications were monolithic and they were in enterprises and, you know, they weren't distributed. Uh, we moved then to virtualization, which effectively allowed for greater consolidation of workloads onto a single server. So server consolidation has been happening gen over gen. You can get more work done in each server. In the last decade, we've shifted even uh, to a newer uh, programming style of microservices and that, or containers, um, and that allows even more packing of the work to get done on a single server. So it's both a combination of hardware innovations hardware innovations uh, and software innovations and hardware innovations that accelerate the, the evolution um, of the software. So for example, in our latest fourth gen Xeon uh, processor, we have accelerated this most modern workload of microservices. Um, that's work that we're always doing, optimizing the software stack with the underlying hardware. And you're really able to unlock a tremendous amount of efficiency by making sure that your software takes advantage of all the capabilities within that hardware. And you'll hear me probably talk about that throughout this uh, conversation. You had um, your last question <laughs> in your multiple questions was uh, around AI. And, you know, I, I was asked last year, what's 
you know, as folks are going into um, college and they want to work on sustainability, what's one thing that they should, you know, consider doing? And I actually said AI. And I was at the beginning of my journey understanding um, this larger landscape, but I, I believe in it even more, you know, a year later because AI is basically some a technology that will help you to understand the the workload demands of your system, right? And a data center is a system. If you're running a particular particular application, like a 5G network, if you are a telecom provider, uh, how do you look and at and analyze your mobile user traffic? How do you look at your energy consumption? How do you look at the resource utilization of your compute hardware that's underlying it? When you start to um, apply AI, you're going to be able to get ever greater efficiency out of the underlying hardware. Now, we know the, the current talk of the day are these large language models, generative AI. Um, the training that is done with these, it is a very large consumer of energy. Um, and so, you know, I want to clarify that all AI won't be done in these large language models, right? It's a, it's a subset of the AI that's being done every day and that can be is being done on the processors that are already available, even on your phone, uh, in the data center and beyond. Um, but so looking at these large language models, knowing that they're going to be a large consumer of electricity, you know, let's put that in context. Uh, training the GPT-3 model just once uh, has been reported to consume a thousand 287 megawatt hours, uh, which is enough to supply, this is mind boggling, an average US household for 120 years, according to a report published by uh, University of Michigan professor, uh, Masharaf Chaudhry. But this is training is just one piece. Inference is the other half of machine learning and that occurs millions of times and ongoing. We, you know, we believe the average industry mix is about 60% inference uh, and 40% training today. As these new large language models are being adopted and growing and studied, we actually think that mix is gonna increase even more to have a greater percentage up to 70 or 80% of the energy being consumed by inference versus training. And that can be done on a variety of hardware. Um, that is much less energy intensive. And I, I mentioned CPUs because when you think about the, the programming, uh, the utilization of servers, the different models, you can actually stack different jobs into the servers you already have. You don't need specialized hardware and you can run uh, that work you know, at different times. You can pause it. Um, it doesn't need to be at the times when the energy is maybe in short supply. Uh, which we know is happening in some economies that have really, you know, focused their economy on being a data center supplier. Um, so anyway, lots of lots of opportunity in the future. And while AI is going to help us to solve a lot of problems, you know, it's, you know, I just want to be clear that it's not, again, to your point, yeah. just going to exponentially grow, right? Every awesome. model doesn't need to be trained uh, all the time. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it is interesting to think about kind of the way that you lay that out there, that there's there's hardware improvements that are being made, there's software improvements that are being made, there is there is kind of advancements in the way that we're able to do software and computing, that being things like AI, that help us see and develop and understand how to do things better. And so at almost every different stage, there are improvements to be made in terms of computing efficiency. And I really like how you brought in, like maybe not all of us are, are using ChatGPT or one of these AI generative softwares or programs, but we all, most of us probably have a smartphone. Maybe we used Google Maps today. Maybe we did a search on Google or on a different spot. And there is underlying AI or some type of underlying 
computing that we are doing in our daily lives. So when we think about like this whole chain of, of efficiency improvements, we need to look at all of it. And I, I'd like to focus in on one of those, that first part of say, looking at our phone, how, how do we actually, or how do you go about thinking about how to improve the first with the, the software component? How do we improve and how does software play into more efficient computing? Yeah, sure. Um, so <laughs> there's there's a lot of ways that software plays into more efficient computing. It's that's a big question. <laughs> um, when when I think about it, um, you know, computing it's gonna you've got to touch every single piece to become more efficient. You know that the approach that we take um, looks at collaborating with industry partners so that the solutions will be scalable. And that's everything. So when I think of software, it's everything from the microcode that's actually helping the, the actual chip to be more efficient, to communicate the drivers, the BIOS, you know, the, all the way up the stack. Um, so there's pieces that we own uniquely but there are so many more additional layers, especially in a data center or in a network uh, where you have a control plane, a data plane, orchestrators, um, and then applications on top of all of that. So our approach is really to engage within each use case across the entire software stack. Um, so obviously we're going to ever be building more efficient CPUs um, with new architectures that have even more built-in accelerators. I mentioned AI is being done on the CPUs. It's, um, you know, that's 70% of the inference today is done on Xeons. Um, people, it's not something we talk about enough, I think, um, so that people don't really understand the significant amount of AI work that's already done on Xeons, on the compute install base that's available today. And then we're improving um, that hardware ever more, but in conjunction with the software. Um, so it's hard to hard to piece out like just the piece that was the hardware. Uh, for AI, for example, in our latest fourth gen Xeon scalable product, it is up to 14x more power efficient, right? You're getting wow. more performance per watt out of that solution for AI workloads. That's really important especially when those workloads can consume so much more. So this is an area where we've taken a general purpose compute uh, engine and we've pulled off and built special accelerators inside to accelerate workloads like AI, like networking, like uh, security. All of that helps to increase the efficiency of the overall solution. Uh, I mentioned there's other pieces at the platform level um, this generation, we also introduced something called Intel Optimized Power Mode, and that is a new setting that looks at the average utilization of a server. And while we're building it to be run full throttle all the time, uh, it turns out that most users, other than some really you know high performance computing users, they're not running it in that full utilization mode. More typically, they're running it around 50% or even less. And so what we did with the Intel optimized power mode was we optimized the settings within the product so that you could save actual power, so up to 140 watts of power consumption. And what our customers can then see is a 20% savings overall. Wow. Just by matching the load of the system to where the user is running it, to where the workload is. Um, you know, that's a really important factor. Um, we talked about sustainability at the beginning and how Intel's been focusing for decades on lowering our environmental footprint in the communities within which we operate. That's just, you know, been a core value of ours, transparency and being good, good community citizens. Well, a lot of that work resulted in our factories being more sustainable. And so we're unique uh, versus several other chip suppliers um, for compute is that we not only own our factories, but we're also designing the chips. And so you get this benefit 
of this long history of investment in sustainability in our factories. And one great example is that we have 93% renewable electricity globally. That's across our factories and the buildings like I'm in right now. And what that does is that's one of those great examples of helps our customers to lower their scope three upstream, if you're familiar with all the scopes, um, for the embodied carbon of that chip. Yeah, Um, that's very cool. And so I, I... I do want to touch on this. This is a, a question that I was thinking about. And and as Intel, owning your own factories, running on renewable energy, and what you talked about there with that with the optimized software, I I think there's in my mind, there's a few different areas that, that we've been we've been talking about data centers and and running running their hardware at kind of full bore or 50%. But then you also have these groups that that maybe they're maybe they are a a blanking out. Maybe they are some large industry manufacturing process and maybe they want to run more on renewable energy or at times where you're not at peak load for energy. Is there and and to me this is kind of talking about load balancing if you're familiar with the electricity markets and trying to shift when and where you're doing your work i guess that the, this is a long way to phrase is there a way to think about that and is there a way to automate that or build that into ai and computing power efficiency um yeah, it's a great question. Um, let me start with the first part, and then I'll we can tie it to the second part. So the first part of your question was, I, I think, tied to something that we call carbon-aware software, mm-hmm. right? Where the software knows where the carbon intensity of the grid is and how to offload the workload to a place where the electrons are green at that time. And you start to think globally where the sun's shining or where the wind's uh, blowing, that that's going to move throughout the day and night. Um, there are uh, lots of, there's a lot of work going on in that space. When we think about green software being carbon aware compute, we think is really going to be foundational for those orchestrators who have good visibility into you know, the carbon intensity of the grid where the various uh, compute resources are located. So I do think you're going to see over time more and more um, load balancing to the green electrons because I think we all know that the the grid is not going to green equally globally. Um, So and we're even seeing some uh, industry like very innovative players in places like West Texas um, innovating new business models around, you know, having electricity available. And now how do you bring customers where the network might not be as fast as it is if it were located, you know, in Eastern Texas? Um, That actually is a good problem to understand because you now have people looking at the question of how do you break up the workloads? What really requires that tight SLA or service level agreement uh, for a response time? in a particular amount of, you know, I don't want to get it wrong, but very short time periods that they have for their SLAs. Does the entire workload need that? Or are there portions that could be offloaded um, with a longer latency? And we're finding that 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 is the case. And even with some of the high performance computing, there's different pieces that can get scheduled at different times. Um, So, you know, I think that's some work you're going to see more coming out in the future. The second part of your question was around AI and and how that plays into it. I think, um, you know, there's a lot of ways that once once you have a data center or your workloads up and running, what AI is going to be able to help you do is to predict the load. This is actually something we're having a great conversation with some utilities about last week. Um, they might struggle to meet the energy demands of the data centers. But if the data centers are able to better load balance or predict uh, their energy needs and communicate that with a grid, um, it's going to provide greater stability for all of us as, you know, 
consumers of the energy coming in from that grid. Um, so you'll see more innovation in that space over time. Very cool. And so I think that there, I, I want to talk more about the, the, and I'm, I'm going to blank on what you called it, but the, the optimization and the internally built optimization software with the hardware that to me sounds, and I, I guess taking a step back, just in case our audience doesn't, doesn't know when you're talking about a Xenon versus, versus, I guess the, the difference would be Xenon is a CPU versus what everybody thinks is running on GPUs. Why is the, the question there is why is the fact that a lot of AI being run on Xenons, why is that special? Uh, so it's Xeon, just Xeon. to correct you. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> it's a tough word. I remember when branding first came out with it and it came across my desk and I was like, what is that? What were they thinking? <laughs> uh, it's uh, yeah. So we've uh, been at it a couple of decades with that one. Um, so why is that special? Well, I think, you know, it goes back to what you were saying earlier, Joe, is that AI is not new. AI workloads have been ongoing, you know, in different forms throughout the history of compute. And, you know, in our more recent and, you know, daily lives, it is recommending the product for us or the next movie to watch, or, you know, as you mentioned, the best route that's either the greenest, you know, the most eco-efficient or the fastest. Uh, AI is behind all of that. And I think, yeah, to your point, um, you know, GPUs are there and they're growing, but I just think it's like a, a, the best kept secret that people don't know that 70% of the inference in the world is run on Xeon and even the training workloads um, can be run at scale because it doesn't require, you know, going back to your software question, you don't have to overhaul your code and move it over to a new stack. Um, so that's one of the benefits of leaving it on IA. And depending on how an ISV, which is what we call an independent software vendor, so like all the layers of that stack, um, how important it is, how, you know, you know, their code, that's really a developer question of, is it, does it make sense for me to spend all this effort porting my code over? Or if I'm looking to do some analytics, can I do it within the stack that I have? And that's how we partner with our customers. You think of every customer around the globe they all have developers working on use cases, trying to solve problems for their business. And I'll just, I'll go back to that telecom one, uh, SK telecoms, one that will, we talk about a lot where they did a, a pilot and, you know, by um, analyzing their user traffic, they were able to look at the platform telemetry, right? So you start to think about sensing and what data do you have? And I think that the sensing concept is going to grow more and more as we think about smart buildings. How are you sensing if people are in the room? And then utilizing AI uh, to throttle the resources to match the load. It's back to your comment of load balancing that you were talking about. Um, at that telecom customer, they were able to dial down their CPU frequency when there were low user demands, and that lowered their whole footprint by 20%. So you, you start to think about the, the combination of AI on the platform in each use case. And, you know, Xeons are the most widely deployed <laughs> server processor on the planet. Uh, and, you know, you've got a lot of install base supporting compute where you can continue um, to lower the, improve the energy efficiency of your solution overall by uh, deploying it. We, um, in our network team, you know, they're, they're partnering, again, uh, with these telcos globally, the core network, the wireless network. They came up with a new product, um, software product called the Infrastructure Power Manager. And it's reference software that um, delivers an average runtime power savings of 30%. And, you know, it maintains those key telco 
performance metrics. Mm. Um, and again, it's dynamically matching that CPU power consumption to the traffic. So, you know, when we come up with these concepts, we share them with the world. I think that's one of the amazing things about Intel. We're, we're engineering all of the, the process, you know, exceptionally, the products exceptionally, but we also help to spawn these open ecosystems that can take advantage of the innovation. And so that that is, you know, reference software means there's a template that any telco around the company can now use. And then in collaboration with that ecosystem, we're able to scale the innovation that we have globally and to every industry. So you can envision while this one was focused on telcos, you can apply that same type of reference architecture to different use cases. And we'll we'll share more of those over time. Yeah, that sounds very very exciting and very interesting. It makes me think of so back when back when I was in in university, the football games, you would go to the football games and your phone would never work because all of a sudden you have 30, 40,000 people or however many people all into one stadium and presumably there wasn't enough bandwidth, enough signal, or essentially enough power to get everybody all at once using their phones. Whereas now it sounds like that there there's presumably some solutions that you can do there and even some that wouldn't take as much energy if you have, say, a lull in the game. Now you can kind of power everything down. And then as as the fourth quarter is ramping up, if the game's good, you can ramp your power back up so everybody can stream their their final plays. <laughs> I think that's an interesting analogy of like how the load shifts, right, based on what's happening at that game in, in that example or, you know, elsewhere in the world. Yeah. Yeah. How do you match how do you match the infrastructure, you know, needs to the actual workload demands? And I think maybe up until now, a lot of the deployments haven't considered that exquisite optimization. And I like to hearken it back to like the beginning of compute. You think about the software programmers who had only a couple of K of memory, <laughs> right? And they had such limited compute to go to the moon. They had to be really efficient with their coding because it was an imperative. But as compute became more and more pervasive, the languages became more and more abstracted so that time to market took precedence because compute was so available and accessible and the prices came down. Um, but there's been, um, you know, the flip side of that is they're not as efficient as they could be. And so that's some of what we're partnering with the Green Software Foundation to try to highlight, you know, some of these inefficiencies. I think, um, you know, software inefficiencies are reported to be up to 20% of the cons energy consumption in a data center. Um, that could be powering a large city <laughs> for wow. a year. If you go back to the numbers we talked to at the beginning, like that's a lot of waste to, you know, have a whole yeah. city that's not powered just due to software inefficiency. It's not something that'll be solved overnight, but as, you know, the, the users, and we think about this in our own lives as well, right? Yeah. You know, are we, are we really mindful that, you know, unless, you know, you have some of the newer technologies where they literally are stopping the power draw at times, but most of our appliances, things that are plugged in, they're sipping power all the time. Mm -hmm. And do we think about turning them off, unplugging them? Um, the same seems true there in software or in the cloud world. Are people putting jobs in the cloud and they worked on an experiment and then they got busy and they're working on something else and now something's running in the cloud that's not being used? Um, that can contribute to inefficiency, right? Um, zombie services, they're called. Uh, where, you know, nobody's, it's not doing productive work that is actively being used to run the business. Um, so there's a lot of best practices that we we share with enterprise customers, you know, globally and the many conversations that we're in. We're trying to push for software changes so that people are becoming more mindful and how can we build tools for developers so that they'll be able to, you know, help their you know, their software to be carbon aware in running on the most efficient, you know, product for uh, that job at the time and in the lowest carbon intensity location. 
Yeah. Very exciting. I think it, so we've, we've walked through how Intel and the tech industry is actively improving computing efficiency. And I really like that, that end example there that you've just given of talking to the enterprise companies of like, we are helping you in these different stages and, and how to like, look at it from a large company viewpoint. How do you become more efficient? I, I do want to bring it back as, as kind of a final point to the end user. What, when, when we're talking through all of this and, and if there, is there something like me personally, I'm sitting here, our company's fully remote. I have my workstation here. It seems to have an overheating problem nowadays because the fan's always running, but anybody who's sitting with their workstation in their location, how can I as an individual be either advocating in my workplace or in my, in my office building or in my corporation? How can I advocate for computing efficiency improvements? Is there something I can be doing? And of course, preface this with the assumption that everything's approved by IT proper channels are being taken, all of that. Like we're not breaking the law. We're not breaking company codes of conduct. What can I be doing as an individual? Yeah, that's a great question because it's important that we all start to think about what, what role we play. Um, and, you know, I go back to what I learned in elementary school, right? Reduce, reuse, recycle. Um, so like, you know, going back to that last example, how can you reduce your consumption of all the resources, right, mm-hmm. that you personally are drawing upon uh, in your life, whether it's at home or at work and, um, you know, energy consumption, water consumption, we didn't talk a lot about in this conversation. Um, but, you know, that's a scarce resource on the planet. Um, you know, how are we how are we really thinking about that? Um you know, in the reusing, are there in your office buildings, we do this within our, our company as well as, you know, what is the second life for a product? Is there a place where that can be used? Um, but also in um, the newer hardware is always going to be more efficient. It's also going to have more, um, you know, carbon aware features. For example, Windows 11 has enabled carbon aware features. Um, which we, we didn't talk about, but I think that's, it's very exciting, right? That schedules the new installs of the software to when the grid carbon intensity is lower. Um, so those are really, you're going to see that in newer hardware, newer software, um, that it's going to be more efficient, uh, consume less energy, um, could extend your battery life on the laptop like I'm in, uh, and then prevent you from needing to plug in more. Um, and then, uh, let's see what else, um, there's, uh, management technologies, our Intel core processors, um, have some technology. And so depending on, you know, the role or the company, um, that you're in, you can use that to remotely manage PCs, um, both in and out of band. And some of what that helps you to achieve is you don't need to spend the carbon of sending a technician out to a remote location and back. Um, so using all these technologies really help lower your footprint. Um, and you can remotely wipe PCs, which, you know, going back to that re- reduce, reuse, recycle, um, can enable, you know, a, a smoother and a lower carbon second life or end of life for those products. Um, so that's really important. But the last thing, last two things I'll add are, you know, in your home, in your company, you know, are you asking for renewable electricity, right? I think as all of us as consumers, whether we're business consumers in our enterprises or at home, you know, show the utilities and the governments that we want renewable electricity, that's going to lower the footprint for the planet the fastest when we accelerate renewables everywhere. Um, Intel's got solutions that helps um, this new world we're in where people are now putting solar panels on their home and they're able to put energy back into the grid. 
that it becomes a new technology problem that needs to be solved for two-way energy transmission. And so we have solutions um, for updating smart uh, secondary substations to be able to accommodate that. Um, and then the last thing I would say, um, you know, we talked about it a little bit around that smart building management. Um, a ton of the emissions for the planet are, are certainly, um, you know, through the building emissions and any kind of smart technologies, cooling, is one of the biggest consumers in a data center. It's true of large buildings as well, right? And so if you're really able to you use sensors and AI and to monitor, I've, I've met a lot of great uh, climate tech startups that are, are looking at new innovations to help, you know, large buildings lower their footprint. Um, you know, that's, it's true in data centers as it is, you know, for all commercial buildings. So really thinking about ways, new innovations, um, like in the data center, liquid cooling are some of the new innovations so that you can remove the energy consumption there. Um, you know, the sensors and the monitoring within the larger buildings um, is another one. So those are just a few of the, the tips that I would share from small to big. <laughs> yes. Thank you for those. I think there, there's a lot of good ones in there, both for for people like myself who I work at home and and do everything from my desk here and for those that are in large buildings downtown or who may be in a sustainability position in their companies where incorporating some of these things could be could be part of their purview so very good now I think that is a good a good transitionary point into my final questions. These are the questions I ask everybody. They're a little bit off topic for our conversation today, but actually maybe they will be on topic. We'll we'll find out. The first question being, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? Okay, I had a hard time picking one, so I will say two. But um, for the topic and for the broadest applicability for everyone on the planet, Speed and Scale uh, by John Doerr is definitely the number one recommendation. But because I'm in the computing industry, I feel like there is so much goodness in this uh, new book that has come out, Chip Wars. It's, you know, it's not brand new, but it's pretty recent. Uh, it just talks about the history of computing. And as we all are in this moment where compute is supporting our lives. I think, you know, it's part of history uh, that matters to each and every one of us. So. Yep. That sounds great. For some reason, I, I have heard of chip wars. I don't think it's been a recommendation yet, but I will definitely add it to the list and also speed and scale. The next question is when will we be net zero as a society? That is a great question, um, and it's something that we're working on in partnership, um, you know, with other tech leaders, uh, with consortia that are helping to advise governments on these topics. One of the, the things that we think we first need is some common definitions, right? Right now, um, in scope three in particular, where you're looking at your upstream supply chain, your downstream product in use. Um, there's no common definitions for that. And, you know, we saw this gap and it's very difficult to then, you know, compare or know, is your baseline really improving if we don't have that agreed upon and aligned common definition? Can I compare company A versus company B as if they're not the same? Um, so this is some of the work that we've helped to start as a co-founder of the Semiconductor Climate Consortium. Um, and we're also working with MIT PIA. How do you define some of those methodologies and help them to become standards? Um, I think once you have that, then you have a way to measure it and now you can manage it and you can work on the action plan to bring it down. Um, and I think that's going to help each and every industry identify, um, you know, their pain points, if you will, the tornado, the Pareto of um, activities that and actions that they could take to start building their own roadmap to get to net zero. I think most importantly, Nobody can do this alone. Yeah. <laughs> so every single um, customer that we have is possibly a supplier of folks on the line. 
Um, it's all a very interwoven global supply chain um, that and value chain overall. And that's why, you know, we're really believe in this collective action through through some of these aligned consortia. Um, that's that's going to help us get there together. No forecast on timeline, though. <laughs> no, I think that I think that's great. And I think this show actually will will come out after my hundredth episode. But I think I am going to switch up that question because it it really is more important, not when we'll be there, but how are we going to get there? And I think that's what I really appreciate about your answer is that it it's more about the how and what is it going to take. And so it 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 definitely is going to be a a societal group or all of us need to push forward to get there. It's not going to be one or the other or a single group or people. That's right. I, I'll just add to that because we talked about it a little bit with, um, you know, some of the solutions earlier in the conversation. I think it's going to take behavior change from everyone. Mm-hmm. And what incentives do we need to pull that behavior change through, both as consumers? Um, you know, I'm, I have a plan to go visit my family in New York City next weekend. It's a little <laughs> looking a little like Mars there right now, yeah. right? With the wildfires from Canada coming in. Um, so, you know, are we at that crisis moment to drive individual behavior change? Um, you know, what will it take for businesses to change? We talked about those data centers, you know, the latency. Like, should you expect, we can think about as consumers, your photos that you haven't looked at <laughs> for five years to instantly load, or could you wait, you know, for them to come from somewhere farther away? Um, It would take an expectation change to really internalize that there's externalities to the choices that we make. Yeah. Yep. I like that. So now the last question is you get to ask me a question. Excellent. I love that part. (laughs) So I'd love to know what emerging energy technology that you are most excited about. The emerging energy technology that I'm most excited about. I I think what I am most excited about is and, and I'm just going to do a large a large grouping here of long duration to ultra long duration energy storage, and and that is what I'm most excited about because because the I think when we look at something like energy as a whole, we. It, it feels like we always have either the sun or the wind and you can talk about energy density, but it is, it is there. There is some amount of energy there. And the big question is how do we make that? How do we really unlock the potential? Because that's what we're seeing. We, we can generate gigawatts of solar or wind energy, but Unfortunately, a lot of that ends up just getting thrown out. Essentially, it gets curtailed. And and from projects that I've worked on, you see developments stopping because they don't have a market to sell the energy to. And so if we have long duration energy storage, now there is a way to fully unlock the wind and solar resource. And, and I think that is... To me, that is still a technical challenge that we have not we have not accepted and have not overcome. And that's where once we accept that, like, okay, we, we need something that's ultra long duration storage. Now we can actually see a path to 40 or 50% wind and solar running the grid with with storage. And within that group, I, I do have a bias as a geologist. I think the subsurface is the answer. So really subsurface thermal energy storage, 
I think is going to be the ultra long duration opportunity because it, it is a way to essentially turn the subsurface into an infinite battery. So it, I, I can talk about that long until my face turns blue and I tell everybody pretty much all the time about it. So it, by now everybody should know what it is. If you don't know what it is, just look up reservoir thermal energy storage, basically taking that energy, turning it to heat, pumping it in the subsurface and then reproducing it when you need to, whether as, as industrial heat or as electricity in the form of steam running a turbine. It, I think that's going to be a clear winner in the, in the storage category. That's it. That sounds great. Yeah. We could definitely capture all of that wind and solar that we have and find a way to make it productive. Um, yeah, that should, absolutely. That should solve our energy gaps in addition to reducing the energy consumption. So yes. We, we need both. Yeah. Our needs are going to keep growing. Yeah. 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 And I think that is, that's a, it's a very, uh, it's a very important point that as we talk about the almost in my mind, the amount of computing that we have right now, going back to Intel, the part of the reason is because we've had so much energy and we, we are able to do it, but now we're starting to see the, the, I don't know if risk is the right word, but like we see the, the possibility of not having endless power for just endless computing and endless whatever we want to use that power for. So now we see the need to be judicial with what we're using and when and where and how. So it's definitely both more power, but also more efficient use of power. Right. Well, Jen, thank you for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you'd like to say? Oh, I just want to say thank you again for the opportunity. Um, you know, as we discussed, I think sustainability, it's, you know, addressing climate change and the impacts that we're seeing. It's going to take every single one of us, our men's challenges. You know, we at Intel are fully committed, you know, as I mentioned, across our factories, our products, our platforms, the software solutions that we partner with the industry on, you know, to help our customers. So you'll continue to hear more from us in this space. Um, we're on a mission to bring sustainable computing uh, for a sustainable future. Um, if you want to learn more about us, you can visit us at intel.com forward slash sustainability uh, to learn more. Um, so thank you again, Joe, for the time and the opportunity and the audience for their attention. All right, Jen, thank you again. And thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, share it with a friend and leave a review telling me what you're enjoying most or what you would like to hear more of. If you want more news and energy-related stories, we have all sorts of energy-related podcasts on OGGN. You can find them by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting OGGN.com. One more thing, I have a quick favor to ask. I have a one question survey that I want you to fill out. The link for that is in the show notes. Please go fill that out. And if you do, we will send you some stickers. And finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Bye.